Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. That's okay. I didn't need Happy New Year back. That's fine. It's good to see you. It's good to start our year, our week in worship. We're so grateful that you are here. Hope you guys had a good New Year celebration, family, friends. I spent New Year's Eve learning how to pull shots of espresso from the new espresso machine I got for Christmas. 25 shots later, I am still caffeinated and ready to go. It's been like 48 hours, but that bodes well because we have a lot of ground to cover. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We're picking up the study where we left off before our Christmas break. We've been going through this book for several months, I guess, at this point. We set it aside, celebrated Christmas together as a church family, and we are picking it back up. So Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, or if you just forgot what was going on in the book of Luke, I want to bring you up to speed because it's been a few minutes since we've been here. Luke chapter 9, we are in the third year. We're well into the third year of Jesus' ministry. So we only got three years. We're nearing the end of Jesus' life, nearing the end of his ministry. And Luke lays out the events of Jesus' life in chronological order with one purpose in mind, that we might no, the Greek word, epigonosko, no, intellectually and experientially, that the things we have heard about Jesus are true. And what I find so fascinating about the book of Luke is Luke himself, as far as we can tell, he grew up in and around the temple, but he was a Gentile. And so he was familiar with God, but because he was a Gentile, he was only able to go so far in worship of God. And as soon as he heard about Jesus and the things that Jesus was doing and seeing Jesus working on other people's life, it changed everything for him. And so because he was changed and because he was an educated man, a physician, he undertook to, to care carefully investigate all the things he had heard about Jesus. And when he carefully investigated all the things he had heard about Jesus, he left this account for us, the Gospel of Luke, so that the readers nearly 2,000 years later can look back and see with confidence that the things we know about Jesus are true. As we pick up the story in Luke chapter 9, some really exciting things taking place around the life of Jesus. He's shared some of the most profound parables 
in his ministry. He's performed miracles. He's driven out demons. He's raised the dead. Jesus' popularity at this point is higher than it's ever been. In fact, we're going to skip the feeding of the 5,000, but Jesus has this crowd gathered around him. They're hanging on every word, so much so that they, they skip food to listen to Jesus teach. And Jesus has sympathy on him. So the five loaves and the two fish and feeds 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people in total. And I love that we're picking up the gospel of Luke at this monumental moment, because as we think about the things that God has done in our midst over the course of the last several months, he has worked in incredible ways. Not only do we get to celebrate Christmas together as a church family and meet new people, we've celebrated baptisms together, modern day miracles, God raising the dead to life. We've seen discipleship take place, people stepping in to serve in the church, just beginning to take Root. And we're so grateful for the things that God has done in our midst through Christ and his Holy Spirit. But I'm confident, as we see today, that there is more that God wants to do. How is God going to work in the pe- among the people of God is what we'll see today. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, nine picking up in verse 18. It says this. We're just going to go through it kind of slowly, stop and apply it along the way. Luke writes, it says, Now it happened, it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. All right, so we got to stop right there because we read these kind of things. It's kind of perplexing. It says, it says very clearly, it looks like a contradiction in the text. It says, now he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. So was Jesus praying alone or were the disciples with him? It's like one of those things, like, is this a contradiction or could it be both? Because we know that Jesus always withdrew by himself constantly, was withdrawing from the crowds to spend time with the Father. And it seems like every time we read that Jesus withdraws by himself to pray, something powerful takes place in the next moment. And the disciples who were spending time with Jesus, they saw all of this. And so if you are one of the followers of Jesus, as Jesus withdrew by himself to a mountainside to pray, spend time with the Father, and you knew that something significant was about to take place, how far way would you let Jesus go? Wouldn't you kind of follow along and maybe sit at a distance, but to hear him pray? It seemed like as Jesus prayed, people gathered around him. And I think, I think that's what's taking place. I think Jesus was with the, the disciples and the, the crowd of 5,000 men, 15,000 so people, and he's performed this incredible miracle. And so he withdraws after the crowd is, is done teaching and the crowd dissipates and he spends time by himself. He probably settles the disciples down, recaps the, the miracle that God did in their midst. He says, I'm going to go spend time with the Father. And he probably went away for a little while, began to pray, and the disciples just kind of moving closer and closer because they wanted to hear Jesus and see what was coming next. But every point of Jesus' life, like before his baptism, he spends time praying. Before he launches his ministry, he spends time praying. Before he chooses his disciples, he spends time praying. Before he's transfigured on the mount, he spends time praying. Before he goes to the cross, he spends time in Gethsemane praying. Every time Uh, Jesus prays something powerful takes place, which as we begin a new year, I think is a pretty good example for us. As we begin 2022, man, I want to be known, I want Eastside to be known as a people who pray. I'm not talking about just like people who pray before dinner, people who pray in between worship sets so the band can transition on and off the stage. Like people who pray, who lean in to hear the things that God wants to do, where he wants to lead us. Because one of the things I've learned over the last several years is the most powerful moments in our life often come after the most prayerful moments of our life. Like think about some of the things that you've experienced God do in your midst. The people that you have seen come to Jesus, how much time and energy went into praying for those people? Watching people who were healed or 
it, it, it's just incredible to think the most powerful moments in our life often come on the heels of the most prayerful moments of our life. And we want to develop a rhythm of prayer and fasting to hear from God, to plant ourselves in his presence, to experience his power, both as individuals and collectively as a church. And so we're going to talk about in a few minutes how we're going to jumpstart that with a month of prayer and fasting, but save that for a few minutes. So Jesus is with his disciples. The feeding of the 5,000 has taken place. He was praying alone. His disciples were there, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 19, it says, the disciples answered, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so I think it's kind of fascinating. We're just going to see this unfold. Jesus is with his disciples, and he's praying, and he's spending time with the Father, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And Jesus has already demonstrated his ability to read people's hearts and read people's minds. We've seen him read the minds of the Pharisees to understand their hearts and their motivations. So why then did Jesus ask the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? It couldn't be that he had no idea that he was clueless and looking to gather intel. I think he wanted the disciples to look around and audit the popular opinions about Jesus. So at this point, in the pivotal moment of Jesus' life, they could decide for themselves who Jesus was. Christianity, the Christian faith, has never been built on blind faith. Like Jesus invites his disciples both then and now to carefully investigate the marketplace of ideas because he knows that when we do, the truth will always simmer to the surface. And Jesus says in John that he is the truth. And in fact, that I am not the scientist nor the son of a scientist, but I know that I've read these reports, like the more science and history is studied, the more it continues to point to the validity of who Jesus is the validity of scripture. And so Jesus invites his disciples, hey, look around. Who do the crowds say that I am? Like, what are the people saying about me? And they say, some say you're like John the Baptist, the prophet who came before you and prepared the way. We know he was executed by Herod, but some say maybe, maybe we misunderstood you, John the Baptist. Maybe it's one of the Old Testament prophets or you're another prophet, or maybe you're Elijah who has come back and the crowd had these vague ideas because of his life and because of his ministry and because of his power that Jesus was from God, but they didn't have a conviction that Jesus was God. And there's a very distinct difference. Like they had this idea because they'd seen Jesus perform miracles. They'd heard him preach these parables. Some of them had just filled their stomachs with the, the five loaves and two fish that were multiplied 15,000 times over. So they had this idea that this man was something special. He was pretty significant. He wasn't like us. He's, he's a man from God, but they were lacking the conviction that Jesus was God. And I think that this is one of those areas where our culture rubs up against Christianity. Because our culture, you look around, they're really cool with the idea that Jesus is from God. Like we live in a spiritually sensitive culture. People are looking for spiritual reality and they'll look to Jesus and they'll read the Bible. They Google some of the things that Jesus said and they're really cool with the parables and they're really cool with the love your neighbor as yourself and ask and be given to you, seek and you'll find. They're, they're really cool with these things. But the part of Jesus that says he was the substitutionary atonement for our sins, that he went to the cross because we sinned and we needed a savior to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish on ourselves, that's offensive because you start telling people that Jesus is a savior because you need a savior and all of a sudden, it's like, no, 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 no. I think Jesus is just a good teacher. Maybe he's like Elijah, one of those Old Testament prophets that came and dropped some nuggets of wisdom and was taken off to heaven. Or John the Baptist, who came vegan diet, eating all kinds of crazy things. Maybe he's like that. Jesus, they start making, the culture starts making Jesus in the image of who they want him to be. 
They have this vague idea with Jesus, but I love what C.S. Lewis said. I know I've shared this in the past, but he says, Jesus doesn't leave room for us to make him just a good teacher. Like the kind of things that Jesus said and claimed when he claimed to be the son of God, he claimed to be the savior of the world, the substitutionary atonement for those who put their trust in him. Like he doesn't leave room to just be a good teacher. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And again, what C.S. Lewis is saying then is the same thing we do now. Like we want to accept the good things, the easy things, the fun things that Jesus says, but reject his claim of divinity. That is one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis, that a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Meaning, if Jesus showed up as this great, quote-unquote, moral teacher and claimed to be God, he's either a crazy man who's disillusioned, or he's a flat-out liar claiming something that's not true. So he's either a liar, a lunatic, or else, uh, or you must make the choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that quote because like, I think our culture for sure, and maybe even us at times, can kind of drift from this idea that Jesus is Lord. And we we would look at this teachings of who the crowd said I am. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're like a great spiritual leader, a great teacher, a prophet, a, a great role model for us, a man of history. And then he asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? These guys who spent the better part of three years traveling with Jesus, listening to him teach, eating the food that his miracles produced, watching him perform incredible miracles. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Now this was a profound statement. Like this was a profound statement by Peter. We read this through 2,000 years of history that Jesus is the Christ and we think Christ is his last name and it kind of just has lost its significance. But for Peter, he was saying the Christ, the Hebrew Messiah, the one anointed by God, that he is the one that they had been waiting for, that he was the fulfillment of every one of God's Old Testament prophecies and promises. Peter's saying that Jesus was not just from God, but that he is God. Even though we're going to see very quickly, he didn't grasp the full reality of that. This was a turning point with Jesus and the disciples, the relationship with him, this confession, this conviction that Jesus is the Christ is the turning point in Luke's gospel. As Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish on our own. It's this confession that he says in the other Gospels in Mark that he would use to build his church. It changes the way Jesus interacts with his disciples and the way his disciples interact and follow him. And so it is in our life as well. When we make Jesus Lord of our life, when we recognize him for who he is, that he is the Christ, it changes everything about the way we live life. Or at least it should. The crowds, the culture, the others, those on the outside looking in, they might be confused about Jesus, but Jesus is very clear. This is who he is. Peter said with great conviction and courage, you are the Christ. You are the fulfillment of all of God's promises in human flesh. You are not just from God, you are God. And so it is every time we put our faith in Jesus, we repeat 
Peter's great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And we accept the implications that fall from that profound confession. Verse 21, it says, and he strictly charged them, Jesus strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, which is kind of befuddling to me because they've spent two, he spent two years teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. They finally get it. You'd think he wanted to go out on the street corners and shout it, but there was far too many political expectations and implications for the Messiah. If word got out fast, uh, too fast, Jesus knew he would die prematurely. Right, like Jesus has got to get to the cross. It's not that he was afraid to die. In fact, he goes on, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. So it's not that Jesus was afraid to die, but he could not die too early. He had to make it to the cross. And if you ever wonder, like, would they have killed Jesus if the word got out that he was the Christ, the, the coming king, the sovereign king? Think about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in just a few short months. They're laying down the palm branches and their robes and they're welcoming him and they're Hosanna in the highest. Praise be to God, the king of Israel. And a few short days later, he's nailed to a cross. So Jesus has told, told Peter and the disciples, you know, you're right. I'm going to build my church on this confession, Matthew and Mark tell us, but don't tell anyone else just yet. He's going to spend the next several months teaching, preaching, equipping the disciples to be the people who go and change the world with the testimony about Jesus. It's not that he's afraid to go to the cross. In fact, he begins here to reframe their perspective on the, in their expectations of who the Messiah was. Because they, the disciples, like the rest of Israel, were expecting the Messiah to bring peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. And they thought, as his inner circle, they would have a place in his palace. But Jesus instead says... The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised again. I don't think they even heard the third day thing. I think once they heard Jesus was going to be killed, they just like got bad news and stopped listening. But Jesus was coming not to build an earthly kingdom, but to bring a heavenly kingdom. He was coming not to defeat or overthrow Rome, but to defeat, uh, to give victory over sin and Satan and death. He was coming to accomplish immeasurably more than their wildest expectations or anticipation. But what he does here is he begins to reframe their expectations. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come and he was going to suffer. Which begs the question, like, what are your expectations of Jesus? Like, do you look at Jesus honestly and, like, Look at him and hope he will be who you want him to be? Or are you willing to let Jesus frame who he is as the Messiah? Like, I wonder this all the time. I'm like constantly like auditing and evaluating my relationship with God. And sometimes he blows me away. Most of the time he blows me away. But there's times where it's like, God, I've been praying the same prayer for the same person for so long. And, you know, if you're all powerful and realize God is working all things out for good, for our good and his glory, but he's doing it on a different time frame. That God... Uh, I was just talking to Jeff on the way in, praying for uh, a family member. God is a worker of miracles, and it, but he doesn't work on, our, like on demand. Like He waits for us. He prays. We lean in and listen. Our, what are our expectations of Jesus? Because Jesus shows up, and to those disciples, to his friends, to his followers, he says, man, I'm going to be immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine, but it's going to come on the other side of a suffering like you can't wrap your mind around. Then he said to them, and this is where we're landing today, verse 23 says, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be part of this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom that I'm bringing to earth, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. So like, how do we? Let's just kind of think about, think about for a second. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. He's praying. His disciples are there. They know something significant is about to take place. 
Every time Jesus goes away to pray, something powerful happens. We want to be people who pray, who lean in. But how do we really take hold of the things that Jesus came to offer? Salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness and a restored relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The way to take advantage of those things is to deny yourself, literally to say no to oneself. Now, here's one thing I know is that we do not like to deny ourselves, right? Like we do not like to deny ourselves of anything. Think about your New Year's resolutions. Did you make New Year's resolutions? How many of you thought like, I want less of anything. We always want more health, more muscles, more money, more friendships, more family, more relationships. We're never like, man, this year, like, I really want this year to be marked by denial. Maybe you don't make resolutions, but maybe, like, you're one of the people that does, like, a word for the year, and your word for 2022 is it denial? Like, no, I really want to deny myself all of these things. And I think like, so we have to ask, like, why does Jesus say we have to deny ourselves in the first place? I think this is another one of those areas where, like, the culture kind of rubs up against Christianity because from the outside looking in, they look at Christianity like it's a strict set of rules and regulations that will keep us from enjoying life and having fun and living life to the fullest. When in fact, what Jesus is saying is you have to deny those things that are stopping you from enjoying the fullness of a relationship with God and living up to your created purpose. I don't know the best way to illustrate this, but what came to mind, because I'm on this espresso cake, I've, I've always wanted a really cool espresso maker. Got it for Christmas this year. It's like a kid getting a bicycle on Christmas morning. I was so excited, drinking espresso like water at our house and probably gonna die of a heart attack at some point. But I was looking at this huge machine. It's, it's massive. We have no idea where we're gonna put it. We'll cross that bridge at some point. But right now it's like right in the middle of our house and we're pulling espresso shots and it's so intricate. Like there's this grinder up on top and you put the beans in and it grinds it down and you tamp it down. And I've only figured out half the process. You put it in, it shoots these espressos, you get milk, froth it, all kinds of stuff. It's really fascinating. It came with a user manual about that thick in about 17 different languages. And so I could not only make espresso, I'm half fluent in French at the same time. But I was reading this manual and I was thinking like, this, this espresso maker, it's massive, it's heavy. Like we have these, this, this heavy front door. Like I could take this thing, I could park it right on my front porch and it would hold that door open, right? It would be an, make an excellent doorstop, most expensive doorstop anyone had ever had, unless it was like a, you know, but, and it would get banged and it would get dinged and it would get broken. But it, it would never accomplish the purpose for which it was created. Like it would never make espresso. It would get beat up and it would look good for a moment and eventually it wouldn't even be recognizable as an espresso maker. It'd just be this big heavy weight holding the front door open. But instead, there's all of these rules and tips and tricks and how you make good espresso and how you clean the thing so it's ready to go again the next time you want espresso. I know it's kind of a somewhat silly illustration, but it's, it's a pretty clear illustration of our life like we look at Jesus like he's got man he's got all these rules like deny yourself what he's saying is like you don't want to park yourself this intricately designed creation on the doorstep to just hold a door open to get beat up in on the way in and on the way out as the wind blows but you were created for something more like deny what you're denying yourself are things that are actually keeping you from being the person living the life experiencing the fullness of life that God has called you to live I know that because all through the epistles, Paul continually urges the church in Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Corinthians and Romans. He's constantly saying, like, you've got to wage war against those things that seem fun in the moment but are robbing you of the fullness of life. I love the way he says it to the church in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. 
at the end of his epistle, after he's explained who Jesus was and how we walk with him and he's freed us from the law and just this deep, rich theology on the sufficiency of Christ over the law and legalism, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You ever feel like you're doing things you know you don't want to do, and you know you're not getting the results you want to get, and it just feels like you keep going. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, like, do the things I don't want to do. I'm trying to strive after Christ, but I keep doing these things. It's not easy. But what Paul says is, to the church in Galatians, man, we walk by the Spirit because the things that we think we want, the desires of the flesh, which he's going to unfold for us in just a moment, they're actually opposed to what we really want. You know, we want what's easy. We want to park the espresso maker by the front door and not worry about it. just go to Starbucks. But what you really want is this intricately designed piece of equipment that was made for a purpose. He says the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, they're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you really want to do. And you know this just like in the physical realm with resolutions, right? Like you made a New Year's resolution. You want to lose 20 pounds this year. You know, some of you 25 pounds this year, whatever. And then you had cake, Right? You know it's not going to help you get what you want, but in the moment, it feels good. And Paul says on the greater scheme of things, we're, striving at, we're, we're trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself. He, says, he goes on, he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh, the things that seem good in the moment, they're evident. We all know them. We know where they end, yet we still desire them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, elevating things above God, sorcery, looking for other sources of spiritual sustenance or wisdom, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, even being divisive, envy, being envious of what other people got for Christmas, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to list the fruit of the Spirit. He says, finally, he says, if we live, or he says, in those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So why do we deny ourselves? Is it because Jesus wants us to just not enjoy the life that we think we want to live? He's like, no, because the things that look so enjoyable in the moment, they're actually robbing you of the joy, the contentment, the satisfaction, the purpose, the meaning, the abundant life you can have in Christ. And I know many of us, if not most of us, we've lived out some of those things. Some of us are still wrestling with living out some of those things, and we know where they go. Like, we know the feeling after the fact. And Jesus is saying, man, if you want to take hold of all that the Christ, the Messiah, has to offer, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to, to let go of the things that look fun for a moment and follow after Christ. And it's not going to be easy. He says you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross what he's literally saying is like, it's like capital punishment. Like you have to put to death your desires in order to make the desires of Christ yours. Colossians won't be on the screen. So set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because God wants you to put to death the things that are keeping you from him. Um, and he says one more thing. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, make, make God's desires your desires. So take up your cross daily. I, I think there's a lot in that one word that, we could spend a lot of time on, but we'll just do just a moment. But like, there's no retirement age on following Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, if you gave your life to Jesus 
five years ago, 50 years ago, 55 years ago, and you think like, man, I did that once. Like I went to war once I, with sin. I, I've confessed Jesus as Lord. I've put my faith and my trust in him. But what Jesus says is, as you follow me, it's a daily decision. Daily decision of choosing to make God's way your way. Put your desires to death. Daily doing the difficult things so that God can make much of himself through you. And then he says, take up his cross daily and follow me. All through the New Testament, this is the invitation of Jesus, right? Follow after me. Follow after me. As I go, so you go. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, we just said, if you're led by the Spirit, if you're following him, let us keep in step with the Spirit. How do you really gain life? You let your desires be put to death and you follow after Jesus. My favorite story, I think, of all the stories of this uh, was the story of William Borden. 1904, William Borden was the heir to the Borden Dairy estate. He graduated from a Chicago high school and uh, because of his family's fortune, he was already wealthy. And so for his high school graduation present, William Borden's parents gave him, their 16-year-old son, a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. So finally, Borden wrote home from his trip to his parents that he had a desire to be a missionary. People were blown away. This man had like the world at his fingertips. He had all the money in the world. He had an executive level position waiting for him after college. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response to the response he got, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. He wrote, no reserves, no reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look like just one of the freshmen. Very quickly, however, his classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of his classmates wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of the rest of us. He'd already given his heart in full surrender into Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of his settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Borden made an entry in his personal journey journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. The entry said simply, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. He says it was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. Shortly after, another student joined and another student. Borden's small group morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the entire campus. By the end of the first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying jobs. It has been reported that in his Bible, next to the words, no reserves, he wrote, no retreats. Borden went on to graduate, do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished this study at Princeton, he sailed to China, where he wanted to be a missionary. He was hoping to work with a Chinese Muslim, so he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When news of William Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but gave away himself in a way so joyous and so natural it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Taylor in his bio biography. Was Borden's untimely death ultimately a waste? Not in God's perspective. 
As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, it's reported that he wrote, no regrets. And I love that story. I think I've shared it before because I think it's a visible illustration. It's like this visible, tangible illustration. This guy had the world at his fingertips. He had all the money in the world. He had this high-paying job, a tremendous family. God called him to mission work in China, and he left it all behind. And he gave his life before he even landed in China. Was his life a waste? No. I would suggest that he lived more in the 25 years than most people live in a lifetime because he lived those 25 years with Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross daily, let him follow after me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? I think, certainly that has implications for eternity. But I think what Jesus is saying is like, man, we miss out on life if we try to live this life for our own self-advancement. True life is only lived when we follow after Jesus. And here's the invitation to extend to all of us as we enter into 2022. I don't know what God, what you're asking God to do in this year. I don't know if you're asking for family, if you're asking for finances. I don't know if you're asking for a career change or retirement. I have no idea. What I know is that prayer is the difference between the best that we can do and the best that God can do. And we're going to invite you to begin this year with prayer and fasting. Every Wednesday in January, we're going to fast as a church family. I want to invite you to fast with us as a church family, asking God that his power and his presence would be demonstrated in a visible way. We started 2021 this way. And man, the church, God just did some incredible things. We celebrated baptisms. Uh, just the church got to its highest attendance it's ever been to. Uh, shortly after that, we were kicked out of the place we were meeting. And so it's, it's the good with the hard at the same time. But God works in a powerful way when his people pray. So if you're able to fast, if you've joined us before, if you want to step in for the very first time in the month of January, we're going to fast every Wednesday, fasting from food from sunup to sundown, praying that God would demonstrate his power and his presence in a way that he gets glory, that he invites us. If you're not able to fast from food for the whole time, maybe just try one meal, but set aside, deny yourself the things of this world so you can hear the prompting of the Spirit. This week, actually, Savannah, if you'd put that in slide up, the, the prayer and fasting slide, we're going to pray a very, we're going to pray the same prayer together as a church family every week. We're going to ask God to reveal the specific direction he's calling you as an individual to follow him. Ask him to give you the clarity, the conviction, and the courage through his Holy Spirit to answer that call. That as a people, we might live with no reservations, no regrets, never looking to retreat. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. As we lean back into the Gospel of Luke, it's a privilege to look at the story of Jesus unfold before our eyes. Father, there are so many questions floating around in our mind about who you are, and my guess is that most of us are confident that you are the Christ. But what does that mean for us? Like, what is it? Like, we grew up with you, perhaps, or God fears, like we grew up in and around the church, but perhaps there's been a disconnect in our spiritual life where we've done a lot of things for you, but we're just trying to learn how to do life with you. God, I pray that the invitation that you extended to the disciples in the first century to come after you, to take up our cross daily, to deny ourselves, to follow you, 
would become the goal of our life in 2022, that as individuals, as a collective group of individuals following after you, God, that you would just, through your Holy Spirit, just remind us that your presence is always with us, that your power is on hand to work through us, that we might be a uh, force to be reckoned with against darkness in this world. Lord, it's never fun to deny ourselves, but I pray that over the course of this month as a church family, that we would lean in, that we would pray, and that we'd fast on Wednesdays, that we would set aside the desires of our flesh to be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, that you might do something powerful among us as a church, that you might uh, let your presence be with your people, that we might be multiplied for your glory. And God, for all of us, that we would not only know intellectually that the things about you are true, but we would experience firsthand for ourselves that we serve a living God whose Holy Spirit is active in our life and in our world to accomplish incredible things for your glory. Father, it's a lot to ask, but you've made it all possible through Jesus. For that reason, we sing songs of praise. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.